everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast where we have smart conversations about everything related to parenting from prenatal care to politics, feminism to food, work to wellness, and everything else. It's a big job. There's a lot to talk about. What's always kind of amazing thing is that Parenting is such a universal experience. Everybody all over the world has parents, are parents, or no parents. There's no disputing that. But what's truly unique about it is that once you become a parent, you enter into this exclusive secret society of people who are all raising the next generation, you know, the generation who will take the world forward. All of us who are in this parenting gig are part of that super special secret society. And until you have a child, you just don't exactly realize what's going on there. Once you do, you're part of the team. You're part of this global tribe. And you can talk about tantrums and sleepless nights and your worrisome teenager with any parent on earth from any culture, any country, and you'll get it. You may not speak each other's language, but you know about the same gut-level parenting experiences that are ingrained in all of us. We've been there. So I like to bring people into this big old conversation we're having who can really talk about the experiences parents have globally and about what parenting is like in other countries. In some of those countries, in fact, quite a lot of them, um, they have happier, healthier mothers, families, and babies than we do here in the United States. And Some of those countries have really, really poor outcomes where becoming a mother and starting a family can be downright dangerous. The other thing is, though, that while we're all tasked with raising that next generation, we don't all have the same resources. And there's no better example of that than the huge disparities in healthcare access and quality that women in different countries face. All the countries with the very best maternal and newborn health outcomes have universal health care. And every mother has the prenatal, labor, and delivery, and postpartum care she needs to survive and thrive Um, as a mother. Every baby has the chance of a safe start in life. And if he or she has health problems, they can get medical care without their family going broke. In other countries, however, where health care is hard to get, hard to afford, or not adequate to meet women's and families' real-life needs, having a baby can put a woman in serious danger. So today, we're going to have a deep conversation about this and more with Dr. Lori Romancy, a board-certified gynecologist with subspecialty board credentials in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. Um, Before we get Dr. Romancy on the phone, though, let's talk just a little bit of business. Number one. If you're expecting a baby or thinking about it or know someone who is, go pick a cup up a cup. Uh, go pick up a copy of my book, Common Sense Pregnancy. Most of your questions about prenatal care, labor and delivery are answered in there. And it's based on my good long career as a labor and delivery nurse and mother of many. Common Sense Pregnancy is available everywhere books are sold. And if you want an autographed copy with someone special's name inscribed in it, then head over to my website genefaulkner.com and buy your book right there. We'll get it in the mail super fast. Number two, please go leave Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting a great review over on Apple Media, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more reviews we get, the more people will find out about this great big chat we're having. 
Number three, Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is part of the Parents on Demand Network, a curated collection of podcasts all about pregnancy and parenting. There's a lot to choose from in there, and I'm there, and so is Liz's Healthy Table, where registered dietitian Liz Weiss podcasts about her passion, healthy food and family nutrition. Go check it out, Liz's Healthy Table. Okay, thanks for that part, and now let's get Dr. Romancy on the line. Hi, Lori. It's Jeannie. How are you? Hi, Jeannie. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm doing really well. So do you prefer first name or do you prefer um, to go by Dr. Romancy? First name. Me too. Thanks. <laughs> so I read your bio before we got you on the line, and it is a hell of a bio. And now that I've read that, my first question to you is this. Who are you and what do you do? Right. I am an itinerant migrant worker in global health. And for the past, arguably, 10 years, to ever-increasing degrees, I have moved away from working inside the United States to uh, now working exclusively outside of the United States in the global health arena where you're strengthening academic systems for urogynecology or female public medicine, and most specifically for the eradication of obstetric fistula. So, okay. So I want to talk about fistula and, you know, all of the contributors to that in a little bit. But before we do that, I want a little bit more of an idea of of what your life is like. And I got to tell you, I have never before heard a surgeon call themselves an itinerant migrant worker, and I love it. <laughs> well, in fact, that's what I have been for, for many years now, uh, because you need to cater to the ability of women to travel, then mm -hmm. that is often seasonal because uh, obstetric fistula is classically a condition that affects women who live remotely mm -hmm. in in countries that are considered low income or middle income. So they're living a rural life. This often involves the care of livestock uh, and or some element of farming. Uh, weather can often make roads impassable as well on a seasonal basis. And, and so it really is seasonal work. And technically, I am a migrant because I'm usually traveling to countries where I'm not a citizen. Right. So... I think it's an appropriate. I'm obviously at a level of professional function, but regardless, it the label fits, so the shoe fits, so I can put that on anytime. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we talked, we just mentioned fistula, but an awful lot of um, my listeners are going to be really unfamiliar with some of the issues that you deal with daily because they're very, very uncommon here in the United States though they are ridiculously common in many developing countries. So I'm wondering if we could just, let's start with fistula and break it down a little bit. Tell, mm -hmm. tell our listeners what it is, why it happens. So let's start with fistula. How do we explain it to our listeners? I think I'd like to start with a bit of history. And the history Perfect. is that until the early 1900s, 
Obstetric fistula was common everywhere in the world across mm -hmm. all socioeconomic strata, whether a woman was wealthy or poor, educated or illiterate, until the advent of the beginning of modern obstetrics, childbirth was of equal risk in terms of morbidity and mortality to almost every woman on the planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so obstructed labor is very common. And without modern obstetrics, obstructed labor takes you down two unhappy paths. It takes you to a fork in the road. Now, mm -hmm. obstructed labor in this context is labor that goes on for many days. Two, three, four, five, seven. The longest I ever had a patient report was nine days in labor. The baby is, just could not get out. Baby's not coming out. This is unfortunately yeah. a very common condition in humans. So when you have classic obstructed labor and you're in an environment where you cannot hydrate the woman with an intravenous, you cannot give her things that will stimulate the uterus to have more effective contractions, uh, you cannot put on forceps or a vacuum once she manages to push the baby down a bit and she's completely exhausted to help her get the baby out. You cannot do a cesarean section uh, or any other potential intervention that is designed to ameliorate the problems that we see after obstructed labor. And so she simply has to go with fate, which is this baby either will or won't at some point be born. Right, right. Obstructed labor is one of the top five causes of maternal mortality worldwide, but it is no longer a cause of maternal mortality in wealthy nations because with, with intervention to stimulate labor or what we call induction or labor augmentation, and or with forceps and vacuum, and or with cesarean delivery, we have turned classic obstructed labor into failure to progress, where you're stuck in labor for a few hours instead of mm -hmm. days. But in its classic right. form, what happens is it, you get to a fork in the road. So the mother either dies or she survives, manages to give birth to the baby, but survives her way into a host of truly disabling morbidities that will give her problems usually for the rest of her life. Right. Now, one of those so, can be fistula, but there are many others, including things that affect the babies. Usually the babies are stillborn, but when the babies are live born, they have a whole host of morbidities that affect them as well for their entire lives. Right. Nobody is designed to be in labor that long. Right. Right. So fistula is, you know, if if we give it a, a a medical definition, we describe it so that our listeners can understand. Um, it's basically a hole between the uterus and the bladder, or the uterus and the rectum, from which, after delivery, urine and feces have a external passage that it's not that's not controlled. Correct. Correct. And it can also be a connection directly to the vagina, not to the uterus. In fact, it more uh, that's what I meant. You know what? To the vagina. It, but it Thank can you. also I, be to I the uterus. Know. Yeah. It, it but that's not what I was trying to say. I just yeah. got that one wrong. Sorry. Okay. So, but it yeah. can also be to the uterus. Um, 
And yes, that's what it is. So you can imagine the, the baby's head is a bone, skull yep. bone, right? And the mother's pelvis is encircled by bone, the pelvic right. bones. And so if the baby is stuck down there for a very long period of time, it cuts off all the blood flow to the vaginal tissues. And just on the other side of the vagina in the front of the body is the bladder. And on the behind the vagina in the back of the body is the rectum. So these right. are where the holes form. And yeah. it's, it's just uh, tragic. The first fistula hospital was actually here in New York City. But it was torn down in, in the early 1900s. And currently, uh, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel is on that site. Wow. So fistula used to be a problem, again, everywhere in the world. And still some hundred years later, we see it persisting in a very inequitous fashion in low and middle income countries. We know how to eradicate fistula. We just haven't sorted out how to do it in low and middle income countries today. Right, right. So then what ends up happening is that there's a woman or a girl who's had this baby who may or may not have survived, has this fistula and is trickling you know, urine or feces and has no resources at all to be able to have it repaired. So then what happens to that girl? Or woman? Typically, the classic situation is that she is stigmatized and abandoned mm -hmm. and sometimes mm -hmm. physically abused uh, and uh, has her life completely destroyed. Now, that is the, the right. classic story, and that is the reason that the global health community has seen fit since about 2003 to give women with fistula access to treatment. They're very often also at the lowest of the socioeconomic strata. They don't have the resources to travel far or to even be in a situation where they can be aware that treatment is available. So right. community outreach is a big part of the strategy for fistula treatment so that women and women can understand that there actually is treatment. They often feel cursed or that they're being punished by God or that they've had some curse put on them by right. an enemy, a neighbor, or in some communities, it can be taken as a sign of infidelity on her part that this has occurred, right. or that she's just otherwise unfit. She's unfit as a woman that she couldn't successfully give birth to a healthy, happy baby and be a normal woman. So there are a lot of yeah. myths attached to all surgical burdens of disease, but in, with fistula, it really is tragic and demoralizing and terribly, terribly unfair. So tell me a story about a time when you have, um, you know, reached a woman and done her the, re the repair that she needs. Mm -hmm. What's her life like then? Usually as continence is restored, you see them emerge from a reactive depression. It's very common mm -hmm for them to be depressed, particularly if they've lived for months or sometimes years, occasionally decades with the fistula and dealt with the full negative panorama of impacts from their communities. Now, this is not always the case. I want to be fair here. In all of the data around fistula, what we typically see is somewhere around 40 to 50% of women report being abandoned by their families and stigmatized and otherwise forcibly removed from their communities. But 
in the remaining percentages, you see family support, husbands not abandoning the women. And I think Mm -hmm. we have in the fistula community neglected particularly the support of husbands, and there are no small number of them. They're not the majority, but they are not a small minority. They have no support, and we have not learned any lessons from them. And there is a lot that they can help us understand and a lot that we can do to help them help us help the women. So this is one thing that uh, in my current position as a director of a global project for fistula, we have begun to advocate for that the men who continue to support their wives fully deserve to be heard, deserve our support, and deserve to be engaged as partners in the process. Darn right. Shout out to the good guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always remarkable to me that, you know, in a situation where information is lacking, what happens to fill in the blank? You know, I mean, you were talking before about women, probably men too, feeling like they've been cursed or like it's, you know, a cur- something that God is doing. And and I think that that is something we do in a lot of situations. But here we are in a, you know, just a, a purely biological, physical condition that can be repaired. And then once it is repaired, lives can be really transformed sometimes. They can be. Uh, What we often find, though, is that these women not infrequently need support to return to their families and communities, particularly if they've been heavily stigmatized and, and estranged from their communities and families. So they need help being reintroduced. Not always, but often. And so that that part is part of the platform that the United Nations Populations Fund put together in 2003 to address fistula, which is to prevent fistula from happening in the first place, because it's a completely eradicable condition. And to Mm -hmm. give women ready access to quality treatment in a fashion that does not impoverish them financially so that they can be restored quickly, because the longer they're not restored, the more impact they have in terms of mental health sequelae, which makes sense. There's a reactive anxiety and depression. And and in many patients, I've seen what looks to me to be a classic post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome, which makes perfect sense. They have literally faced off against death. They have most often Mm -hmm. dealt then with a stillborn baby with no support for the grieving of the loss of their lives as they knew it and expected it would be the loss of their baby very often being uh, stigmatized Mm -hmm. and estranged from their communities, being potentially abandoned by husbands and immediate family. And so they, they don't always immediately react each and every one, each and every time they, they often are kind of timidly come out and begin to realize that they're somehow restored, that they have continence now, that they are not wet all the time, that they can think about, sleeping on a bed without waking up soaked, that they don't have to rinse out some piece of foam that they're using as a mattress every morning and lay it in the sun, that they, that they don't have to have five changes of clothing and wear some sort of cloth or rag between their thighs all day and night, every day and night, in order to attempt to control the incontinence, that they, they can stop doing that. And that's a slow process. They, so many times it does take them uh, some time 
and uh, but they're almost always happy when they get a good result. And good, res- yeah, good yeah. results and full restoration of all bodily functions are not always guaranteed. I think that's something else that's important to communicate to the public is that uh, very often, but not always, fistula surgery is what we would call completely successful. But there's a margin of women mm-hmm. who have very complex scarring. And so even if we can close the hole, they still remain incontinent. And when they do, it's often significant incontinence. And then they need staged evaluation and treatment, sometimes over prolonged periods of time. So it's not always a magic surgery. Right. Prevention first. Exactly. Makes prevention all the more crucial. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, fistula and the fact that it happens in developing countries more often, partly because there's a lack of resources, but also partly because in some cases there are circumstances that, um, you know, put women at greater risk for fistula. For instance, you know, very young marriage and children, lack of family planning options, little control over their sex lives, female circumcision. Should we talk about some of these? Yes, we can do that. Uh, We're going to, I'm going to, Uh, tell the truth about young marriage. What we see in the fistula community is that while many of these women do marry young, actually everyone in their Mm -hmm. communities tend to marry young. And what we, what we Mm -hmm. don't know is in the full community, if you're in a community where everybody or almost everybody undertakes a certain ritual in a certain way at a certain point in life, Mm -hmm. It then becomes, uh, let's say, potentially a little disingenuous to say that that ritual causes problems, any one of any number of problems that that community tends to see. That's a bit of a statistical game in, in one's head if one isn't used to thinking about populations in terms of statistical likelihood. But mm-hmm. we do see in many women with fistula they, that they have married young. Now, that said, if you go to any given fistula camp in pretty much any part of the world where fistula continues to be a problem, the majority of the women in that camp are well over 20 and are usually already mothers of several children. They are not the 13-year-old child bride. Now, they might have been earlier in their lives a 13-year-old child bride. And so what these are are called upstream determinants of health. If you're born into a remote community where uh, education is very difficult to obtain and typically restricted to male children, where women and girls are considered what we would call in the West second-class citizens who have to bear children and do a lot of manual labor and be of service to their husbands, and that's it. That defines who they are. Um, that in that situation, these women are almost always illiterate and have a very minimal to no uh, income that they control and earn themselves. And they typically are living remotely, although we do see it in urban poor populations as well. But they're living remotely with poor or no access to the type of care that would prevent their fistula or get them fistula treatment. And so they tend to, mm-hmm. and they also tend to have a more traditional, non-medicalized perspective on childbirth. So they, they typically want 
to have that traditional delivery, particularly for their first baby. And, mm-hmm. and communities, uh, the education of communities towards the benefits of skilled birth attendant care in a properly kitted out facility of some sort is a, a, a transition that precedes the prevention of fistula because they they have to understand the benefits, they have to value and believe in the benefits, and then they have to have access to something that where the care is acceptable and affordable. So that's right. a, a, pos- a, yes, positive experience. a positive experience and it has to be of adequate quality so that they don't end up developing a fistula in a facility that's understaffed and undersupplied where they sit and labor in the facility mm-hmm. for four days because they're not having a visible emergency like hemorrhage or seizures or sepsis. When you have an overtasked mm-hmm. labor ward, the more visible urgent emergencies drain all the resources. And women who are quote unquote just in labor can be just in labor in this type of facility for days and under under active yeah. quote unquote care develop a fistula from being in labor for many days, being neglected mm-hmm. in the facility. So there's not Getting to facility right now in some of these communities is still not the answer, unfortunately. And so we see the maternal health community joining forces with the fistula community and now also with uh, what's called the safe surgery community, which is very concerned about strengthening surgical ecosystems and uh, is supporting global empowerment of healthcare systems to engage a list of 44 basic surgeries. 10 of which are obstetrics and gynecologic surgeries that include the procedure of overseeing a normal spontaneous delivery, which is not really a surgery, but if it's, it is a procedure of mm-hmm. sorts. And all the way through cesarean and even fistula repair are in the 10 surgeries that are in this list of 44 essential surgeries. So we're seeing this convening mm-hmm. and convergence of global health communities of practice to begin to look at the prevention side of the eradication equation, which is very simple. You have to prevent new cases and you have to give ready, timely, successful treatment to established cases. And then you have eradication. So do you think that changing social norms or cultural norms is the biggest challenge that you're facing? No. What's the biggest challenge? I honestly believe that the biggest challenge, and and this is controversial, so I'll say right now that there are plenty out there who would be happy to be on this podcast and have a robust debate with me on this point. (laughs) But I will say that it is very challenging to do community outreach and education, to do funding for travel, to do antenatal care, and then to be driving women into facilities that are not prepared to take proper care adequate care, minimally acceptable standards of care uh, for women who are having a baby. There are also challenges, as you point out, with access to family planning, which is preventive for a whole host of obstetrics complications, not just fistula, because it allows a woman to choose when to be pregnant, how often to be pregnant, to space her children, which allows her to recuperate more adequately in between pregnancies, uh, because poor health conditions such as diabetes and anemia probably don't make 
fistula any less likely if a woman's labor gets past two days in duration. Mm-hmm. So we do see family planning as access as a big challenge for fistula prevention and for all maternal health optimization. So is a bigger challenge then, or one that we that is kind of under-addressed at the moment, the funding issue? I would say funding, but funding for and stewardship, stewardship so that whatever funding is available before we drive people into childbirth facilities that are simply inadequate to the basic task, mm-hmm. that we make sure that those ecosystems in those facilities are ready to deal with the average census of birth, that they have an adequate number of midwives for the average number of deliveries they have every week, month, year, whatever periodicity you want to look at that behind those midwives at the ready are OBGYNs or other surgical care providers who are, who are available and ready to come in to do cesarean births when it's appropriate, that you have 24-7 adequate anesthesia services to support cesareans when they're necessary. This is a huge problem in Mm -hmm. the maternal health community is not having anesthesia available. And so, you you know, you have the the surgeon who might be an OBGYN or might be a general surgeon or a family practice doctor or a surgical technician who is credentialed to do cesarean. Put in the spinal, lay the patient down, prep and drape the patient, go out and scrub their hands, and go back in and with a tray and no assistant do a cesarean all by themselves with no one monitoring the woman. Right. This is not at all uncommon. And it is so far below an acceptable standard of care that it just takes my breath away every time I talk to colleagues who are operating under these circumstances regularly. Right. So strengthening the, the care so that it's adequate in the facility, to me, is the root of success. You cannot do anything around any of that to drive women into care if the care is so egregiously inadequate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We could eradicate we could eradicate child marriage tomorrow. Let's say we had a magic wand and nobody gets yeah. married before 18 and all women and girls get secondary education and they're fully empowered to vote and they're not second class citizens and every time they go in to deliver a baby It's in a terrible facility where the midwives have two patients on the bed and two patients on the floor, 12 hours at a shift, completely overtasked, delivering 30, 40 patients per shift by themselves with inadequate supplies, inadequate equipment, inadequate backup for interventions that are necessary to help these women. The OBGYNs or whoever's doing cesarean deliveries are doing on average six or more per day by themselves with no assistant, and very often with no anesthesia support either. How Mm. we will still have big problems, and Mm -hmm. we will still have women getting obstetric fistula. So I am a true believer and a bit of a zealot uh, for making sure that the care is adequate for maternal health services, and also while we're at it for newborn services. Babies can be born with big problems. This is another issue that we see that's beyond the scope of this podcast, but babies can need support, right? They can need helping, helping babies breathe, which is a a global protocol that I'm sure you're familiar with. 
it's, yeah. it's just the beginning. Those are just simple steps that anyone who's a skill birth attendant can undertake if a baby is having difficulty breathing with some very minimal right. equipment, correct? But sometimes when babies are born with challenges of breathing and other problems, born with infections already established because the, the mother was getting a fever, so the baby's born with a fever. And these, these are sick babies, and they also need support. And on the pediatric side, we also see big gaps in adequate, reliable care for the yeah. newborn, newborns as well. I was in a, a delivery room in a very tiny village in um, both in Peru and in Haiti. And in both of those delivery rooms, Next to them, they did have a little room that they called their nursery, and they did have an, you know, kind of an old incubator in there, but they didn't always have electricity, and they certainly didn't have piped-in oxygen, and they didn't have, you know, any of the equipment that they needed to support a newborn, but somebody had donated the incubator. It's just, there you go. Right. And you see yeah. these comma tragedies all the time, and especially in low-income countries. And middle-income countries are one of the first things you see as a country goes from low to a middle-income status, according to World Bank rankings of, the, of uh, national economies, is that the health system often does strengthen and stabilize itself yeah. um, because there's more, there's more money. And also people... Uh, your middle class is growing and the middle class is demanding a minimum acceptable standard of health care and they're getting it because they're professional. They both they have influence in their communities. It's just a, a, a different type of social contract between what the government can provide and what the community is asking for. Right. But not always, not a perfect formula. I mean, we don't have perfect health care here if you want to talk about what's going on. Yeah. That, that's mortality here in the, isn't it? Yeah. Here in the yeah. United States. But we still don't have this, Jewel. Oh, and I, well, I'll save that for the end. Um, I have a fun fact I'd like to share with the community before we close out. Okay, sounds good. You, you want to share it now or are we going to hold it in surprise? Oh, let's hold it. Let's okay, hold sounds it good. Again. Well, I only get you for another few minutes, but I do want to ask you a few other questions and maybe we'll just kind of take them rapid fire. You ready? I'm ready. Do you see positive change happening for women? Yes. Okay. I see a lot of access, particularly in the education sector. You know, fistula should be eradicated and fistula is a classic sign that many systems across several sectors, particularly specifically health, but also education, transportation, and um, economic empowerment are failing girls and women. It's mm -hmm. a trans-sector failure that allows fistula to occur. So when what I am seeing out there in the community is that there's a lot more girls' education. I see it on the roads. I'm traveling back and forth to the hospital, girls in school uniforms, and a lot of promotion of education in low and middle income countries. And they have a very strong focus now on what's called girl child education. And that's a, that's a wonderful development because 10 years ago when I first started, I did not see this on the road. I did not see public evidence of this. You know, I'm, I'm out there in the health sector and I'm very busy in the health sector when I'm on the ground. And so I'm not visiting schools. So to see visible evidence of that everywhere on the streets, in the rural communities, in the urban communities is really heartening. Okay. Are you concerned about the direction women's health has taken in the current administration? Yes, we're on a, a slippery slope and uh, 
One word answer is fine. Yes. That's it. Yeah. A lot of our listeners might be asking, why is this information important to me, an American parent who has all the health care we need? Because health gaps anywhere in the world can easily become health gaps everywhere in the world. Yeah. And also, I think that a lot of Americans probably don't recognize just how integrated we are. You know, the well-being of a woman, a family, a community, a country across the world really does potentially have an impact on our own economic security, national security, you know, all kinds of, we're all integrated now. This isn't a a situation where it's us and them. It's all us now. So, you know, a woman in a community, you know, if there's a, a, a population of women who are suffering in this way, um, that really tells us something, as you mentioned, about what's going on in the community at large. And it affects us. Yeah. So we've got just two more questions. And I ask everybody these two. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me that in the United States every year, thousands of girls under the age of 15 give birth. And none of them develop a fistula. So when we think about the framework of the child bride and that eradicating child marriage will eradicate fistula, I, I simply look to the lessons that we can learn from countries who are a little farther ahead of the curve. Child right. marriage is not legal, but we have communities who practice it. We also have young girls who unfortunately are otherwise sexually abused and end up pregnant. And yet they're living this horrible circumstance inside a community where the health system is so adequate and so available that though they could be 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old having a baby, they do not develop fistula. And I think that speaks for itself. It's going to be very difficult to eradicate children having children. We all want that goal for many reasons, but to eradicate it is truly a a very difficult task. And in a health system that's strong, even a 10-year-old who is tragically pregnant is not going to develop a fistula. And I think we have to look at that very clearly when we talk about eradicating fistula in low-income countries. But someone asked me a challenging question one day, and I went and mm-hmm. looked it up. It's a CDC publishes the data every few years. And every year, on average, I was, well, I was about ten to 12,000 per year. But the latest data from, I, uh, I don't want to get the year wrong, I think 2015, it was just shy of 4,000. So there was a, a significant drop. But that's still mm-hmm. thousands of girls every year, girls, literally children, giving birth and no fistula. Hmm. Remarkable. Okay, my last question for you, and then we get our surprise fact. And this question, answer it any way you want. Where are you in your life in terms of motherhood? And I'd say maybe other than surrounded by it. (laughs) I have two grown children. They are Mm -hmm. often living their grown-up lives. And I was delivered by midwives, actually, which is unusual for an OBGYN. I was delivered by midwives in a maternity center in New York City. And it was a great experience. I'm a true believer in the power and empowerment and impact of midwives. They are necessary. Me too. What's your fun fact? 
oh, my fun fact was the fact that we have thousands of girls in the U.S. giving birth every year, but I'm sure I could come up with another one. Let's see. Um, well, I gave away <laughs> another one, which is that about 40 to 50 percent of women who suffer the horrific and debilitating consequence of obstructed labor that is fistula are not abandoned by their families. But here, I'll give you another fun fact attached to that. In high-income countries, incontinence is one of the top reasons for admitting uh, people to nursing homes and and other sorts of supportive care environments. So I think it, it just points out that when you have someone who's constantly incontinent, they become very difficult to live with, even in a Mm -hmm. 3000 square foot home in suburbia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we can imagine how difficult it is in remote settings where uh, families are living in what is in essence, one room or maybe two rooms without modern ventilation and modern indoor plumbing, et cetera, et cetera, how, how physically challenging that can be. And so it's never, it's difficult to understand the cruelty related to how some of these women are treated, but to have them move outside the home, particularly when that home is one room into a home in the back, still very depressing, but that's often what happens. They, they get moved out into another home. And when you stop and think about what it's like to live in, with a, someone who's terribly incontinent, you can begin to soften your perspective on the burden that's placed on the families as well and what they have to do to cope with that in a functional way. Right. Right. It's a complicated world we live mm-hmm. in. Well, Lori, this has been a really enlightening conversation, and I really appreciate your having it with us. Thank you, Jean. There's a lot more we could. There's a lot more we could talk about here, but you have to go save the world today, yes. Lori. I'm off. <laughs> I'm off. The, the, the car is at the door. So I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, let's do this again sometime soon. Our guest today was Dr. Lori Romancy. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. Tweet me at jeanfaulkner. Email me jean at jeanfaulkner. Leave me a nice review and don't forget to buy the book. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. All right, everybody. We'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.